and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, editor-at-large for LARB, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by my wonderful co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So today we're talking to Jay Hoberman, who's a film critic and whose latest book is called Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. And he came to Los Angeles, he came into the studio to talk to us about the movies that preceded Reagan and sort of shaped the Reagan presidency, but also really shaped American culture from, you know, the 70s on. Right. Yeah. And of course, I mean, everyone knows that Reagan was an actor before he became governor and then president. And that there's some obviously much resonance now with someone else who's in office who was also a form of performer or entertainer. And they were both pretty subpar presidents. So there's that connection um, to the present moment. But I, I was just fascinated by Jim's reading of films and the kind of blockbuster starts really in the age of Reagan. And also he thinks that Ghostbusters is the quintessential Reagan film. Yeah. Which I wouldn't have thought of. I wouldn't have thought of that either. Yeah, that was really surprising. But he does a really excellent job of sort of weaving together the resonances of all these different movies and the implications of the movies and how Reagan as a as a politician and a public figure sort of ingested all these things and then projected them back on project no pun intended um projected them back on to the culture in the united states so it's a great conversation it's a great book yeah i'm a longtime fan of jim's writing so this was a real dream come true for me well let's listen to the show great We have Jay Hoberman in the studio with us today. Jay is the author of many books, including The Dream Life, Movies, Media, and the Mythology of the 60s, and An Army of Phantoms, American Movies, and the Making of the Cold War. He has written for many, many journals. We can list some of them here. Art Forum, The Nation, The New York Review of Books, and The New York Times. For over 30 years, he was a film critic for The Village Voice, which sounds like a dream job. To me, no longer is available to anyone, and he currently lives in New York. His latest book is called Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Make My Day is part of a trilogy of books that you write is actually a single book called Found Illusions. So just to start, I wonder if you could talk about the themes of this trilogy and kind of what your objective was in writing it. A short description would be that I wanted to do a history of the movies as America's political imaginary or dream life during the period of the Cold War. So the way that worked is that I, it's a kind of chronicle where these two narratives are unfolding simultaneously. And it's not just movies, there's also television and to a lesser degree popular music and so on. But it's basically the movies that are telling a certain story, however indirectly. And it started out, it was not going to be three books, of course, originally. It just sort of grew and my publisher said, well, why don't you just do a section of it to start? Because, you know, I'm the kind of writer who likes to do the easiest thing first. You know, I said, I'll do the 60s section because you know, I lived through that, but I wasn't, you know, I was a teenager and it just, you know, I 
loved the period. It was formative to me. And then I did, went back into the 50s, I did a lot of research about the blacklist and that part of the Cold War and how that impacted Hollywood. That was really fascinating for me. I learned a lot. And then I went and did the last section, which was on Reagan. And by that time, I realized that Reagan was the protagonist of this trilogy, which it really, I didn't set out to do that, but he was in every section. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a player during the blacklist period in the Cold War. He was the governor of California in the 60s, and then he became president. And so I did that last, but then, you know, it's like a Moebius strip because it occurred to me that in a way that was like the first section because that's when I got the idea for the book when Reagan was president. I was a working film critic then, and that's why in the last part in Make My Day, I have to refer back to things that I wrote because in the earlier ones, I was like drawing on things that other critics had written because I wanted to get the sense of how these movies were received in their own time. And it would have been crazy for me to be manufacturing or quoting other critics when I was there myself. So that's not too convoluted. That's my yeah, that makes <laughs> account perfect of how sense. the books perfect work. Sense. Would you bring us back a little bit to the time when Reagan was president? What were you doing and how are you understanding his presidency then? During the 80s, I was you know, a film critic and then the lead film critic at the Village Voice. Mm -hmm. I didn't really specialize initially in Hollywood movies or commercial films. I mean, I was much more interested in experimental films, foreign films, documentaries, political stuff. I mean, that was my beat. And what happened was the senior critic, Andrew Saris, very well known, was ill. He fell ill. And I kind of had to take his spot. And I would suddenly be reviewing all these movies, which I never would have otherwise reviewed in which mm. I wasn't really all that interested in and the way I the strategy I had to make it interesting to me was to like see them in political terms and it was very natural to do that with Reagan as president because even from the beginning I was aware of him as a performer you know as much as he was anything else and in fact when I was doing research for this book I discovered I'd written something for the Berkeley bar I mean in the 70s about Reagan's movie career so I knew all this and I understood how it was significant, but I did modify my view when I was writing the book because I knew that Reagan was in the movies, and everybody did. And in fact, it was kind of taboo to talk about that. Initially, political reporters did not really like that. They thought it was superficial, and then things changed during his second term. So he was in the movies, but I realized that the movies were in him, which is maybe much more significant, that he had internalized this whole Hollywood worldview, and that's really something that enabled him to kind of cast this spell over the American people, and not even just in America, that Hollywood understood a certain logic of making movies that were hegemonic. They're going to appeal to the greatest number of people, and they're going to ultimately make you feel good, which became an issue in the 80s for other films. He believed in that stuff himself. Maybe you could talk a little bit about his career and his who he played in Hollywood, how the you know frame was set for who he was as a president and mm-hmm. what his persona was, because I knew of his acting a little bit, but I always had an idea of him as a very minor actor. And it sounds like from your book, he had more of a career maybe than I imagined. Well, he wasn't the first tier star by any means. I mean, he was a contract player for Warner's. And Warner's was the most political of the Hollywood studios. It was the one that was closest to Roosevelt and the New Deal. Not that they were such great bosses, but that's who they supported. Reagan 
came to the movies first by way of radio, which is significant because mm-hmm. his voice it was a really great instrument. He used to do baseball games. You know, the game would come in over the teletype, and he'd be reporting on it as if he was there. He did that, I think, in Des Moines and maybe Chicago, too. So he came to Hollywood. He signed to a contract. He had, you know, minor roles, supporting roles. I mean, he had a couple of parts which he treasured. I mean, there's a melodrama called King's Row, which he had a major part in. But he was not a big star. But he was part of the whole Hollywood community. I mean, people would have known who he was because at that time, everybody went to the movies several times a week. It's pre-television, and so movies are what they are. When the studio system began to break up around 1950, he was cut loose from Warners, and then he made some Westerns and so on and some less important studios. And his career continued, but it wouldn't have, it would have petered out. And in fact, it sort of did. I mean, he went on television and so on. The main thing is he was not John Wayne. I mean, he was not that or Jimmy Stewart or uh, Gary Cooper or any of the big male stars of the time. He was a second-tier star. You know, the movies that he were in were not all that interesting. Personally, you know, the first movie that I saw him in was a movie called The Killers, which was mm-hmm. the last movie he made. And this is a came out in 1964. And he plays a terrible guy. <laughs> he plays this, this sort of, you know, corporate gangster. At the time, I had just come back from Berkeley. I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art in, the, I think, in the summer of 1969. So I had been in Berkeley the previous summer, and he was like, from my point of view, as a student opposed to the war and so on. He was like public enemy number one. I mean, we mm-hmm. hated this guy. <laughs> so there he was as this gangster in this movie, and I thought, why would he, why, you know, I couldn't put it together. Like, was he playing what he really wanted to become? I mean, why did he do this? It's like, it was very naive. I didn't realize he's acting, you know. But, but you know, like, really colored my view of him, Mm -hmm. you know, when he became president and so on, and even before. I mean, I still hated this guy. And that's who I thought he was. I could never get it how, you know, he could have this kind of avuncular, appeal that people could just like think he was a nice man you know that they have this warm feeling mm-hmm. about him well and also his relationship in hollywood to he testified on the house of un-american activities so he was tattling on supposed communists he had this staunch anti-communist past but then our producer is wondering you know wasn't he also a union man at one time He's and a liberal president so, of yes. sag is that right yes yeah it's paradoxical i mean He was, yes, a liberal Democrat. He was even a New Dealer. I mean, his father's life was basically saved by the New Deal. You know, he got a WPA job in the early Depression. So he had every reason to support Roosevelt and the New Deal. And, of course, the studio did, too. His evolution didn't happen overnight. I mean, he it's true that he testified, but he was not one of the more virulent communist hunters at the time. I mean... He took a side. There was a strike at Warner's, which was incredibly divisive in 1946. Not to go too much into the weeds in this, but strikes were not permitted during the war. And then after the war, there are a lot of strikes in many industries. And there was a struggle in Hollywood between a union which was, if not communist-run, was certainly like the left-wing union. And there was a union that was controlled by gangsters, Mm -hmm. which the studio bosses preferred. I mean, they were easier. It was easier to deal with them. And Reagan took the side of the studio. 
So that sort of fed into his anti-communist paranoia. But again, he was not John Wayne. I mean, John Wayne was, you know, like a fanatical anti-communist and so were other actors. Reagan voted for Truman and I think campaigned for him in 1948. It was really after that and after he married Nancy Davis, whose father was a very right-wing doctor in Chicago, that he moved steadily to the right. And he hated the income tax. I mean, (laughs) that was his big issue. He was opposed to the income tax, and he definitely saw which way the wind was blowing. Mm -hmm. And so he moved steadily to the right. Now, the thing is that at the same time, he's the head of the Screen Actors Guild. So he is a union leader. And it's a paradox that, you know, when he became president, the first thing he did was try and break up, break a union. But it's important to remember the Screen Actors, it's a guild also. It's not necessarily a union in the way that we think of unions, but that was his trajectory. And, you know, in the 50s, he was probably, it was more influential when he was just a TV spokesperson for a GE But he then got too right-wing for them because he criticized the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, which was something that GE, of course, loved. I mean, it was generating all this electricity. I wanted to ask, so the moment before Reagan, the book is amazing in the way that things just seem to kind of follow each other and shift. And it begins to be hard almost to tell, like, entertainment from reality at a certain point. So it's this kind of post-60s depression, lots of just paranoia and cynicism. And certain movies come out that bolster that feeling. And then there's a shift in the mid-70s. And you kind of hinge that on George Lucas's American Graffiti. So I just wondered if you could take us kind of from the time before Reagan to the kind of films and ideas that start to circulate around and during his presidency. Well, the late 60s and the early 70s are, for me, a great period in Hollywood. And one reason is because there's all this social tumult and confusion in the industry. This happened also in the early Depression. I think that those movies are really great, too, the ones from the early 30s. When the studios didn't know what to do, they didn't know where the audience was, they didn't know what was going to make money, it enabled all kinds of crazy things to happen. And, you know, the movie that would stand in for that most obviously is Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde is a movie that really got made almost by accident, really just because Warren Beatty saw it and saw the potential in it. And it broke any number of rules and it polarized audiences. And in the wake of Bonnie and Clyde, and I think it would have happened even without Bonnie and Clyde, but that really it was catalytic. You had younger and less conventional people making movies, and you had movies that were in a way more experimental, that the studios were willing to try things to get this youth audience that they thought was out there and was. And it's very rich. I mean, there are a lot of crazy movies that were made then. I mean, things like Myra Breckenridge, you know, and then there were a lot of really great movies that were made then, too. I'm thinking of something like the Peckinpah films, I mean, The Wild Bunch. You can see this most clearly in Westerns because Westerns are so bound up in America's sense of itself and the supposed history of the country and so on that they always reflect what's going on at the time. And during the Vietnam War, there were no movies about Vietnam, but the Westerns almost had to deal with this in one way or another. And they did. And so, you know, it was a great period for Westerns. And then they flamed out because I think that the war sort of made them unsustainable. Anyway, there was this great period, I think, in Hollywood, but a chaotic one and unsettling really to the industry and to many people as the 60s were in general. And then there was a kind of consolidation. 
And the key movie in the consolidation, I believe, is American Graffiti. I mean, Lucas came out of film school, as a lot of the younger filmmakers did, and that was a new thing, too, to have a university-educated filmmakers, or university-trained filmmakers would be more precise. And his first movie was this very downbeat science fiction film, very much like a 70s thing, this dystopian view of, you know, sort of like his version of 1984 or Brave New World or something like that. There were a lot of dystopian science fiction. Critically, it was well-received. Audiences didn't like it much. And he was thinking, well, you know, it, it was time to make a movie that audiences could feel good about. This was his realization. And he also wanted to make a movie about his past, growing up in Modesto, California, you know, and driving around, you know, being what Tom Wolfe referred to as the generation of super kids, you know. And so he made American Graffiti. And the studio did not get it. I mean, they really did not see what this movie was about. It was made as part of the youth division in Universal. And it's really only because his buddy and to a degree his mentor, Coppola, put his weight behind this movie that it got made and got released. And of course, it was an enormous success. And what it did was it really cashed the check. There was a lot of talk about nostalgia in the early 70s, but it was not necessarily focused on the 50s or on this period. And so he sort of invented this form of generational nostalgia in this movie, which is very seamless. And a lot of things which we take for granted, he pioneered, he might not have invented them, but using this wall-to-wall rock and roll soundtrack and focusing on high school kids, but in a specific way, really making them the protagonists. And the movie is set in 1962. And to me, that's really like the end. Of, that's when the 50s end. It's set right before the Cuban Missile Crisis scares everybody into another state. And it skips over this whole period of tumult. Anyway, it was very successful with audiences. And I think that it inspired, or it certainly helped stimulate this whole new way of thinking about the 50s, which you saw on television with these sitcoms, Happy Days, and Laverne and Shirley, and others. And to me, that's the movie that changes things around. And it's always instructive that these things come from left field. It's not like the studios could have planned this. I mean, it took one person to have this insight, and then this insight turned out to be universally popular. I mean, a few years after that, you had Rocky, which is a similar story. That had, from my point of view, an even worse effect on the movies because, you know, we don't even have to go into the whole racial dynamic of Rockies unless you want to. But suffice to say that this kind of, like, enforced happy ending and that, you know, audiences are, like, primed to come out shouting and screaming. I mean, it was, you know, this kind of very coercive movie in a way. And it came out in the year of the bicentennial where there was a lot of stuff, you know, in the culture. You know, Nixon was gone. We wanted to be born again be innocent. The thing about Rocky, it coincides with Jimmy Carter's success. And I think that, I don't think that Rocky caused Jimmy Carter. I don't think that Jimmy Carter caused Rocky, but I think that they're both symptomatic of the same thing. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Jay Hoberman, author of Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Daryl Pinckney on the line with us today. Daryl's latest book is called Busted in New York and Other Essays, and Daryl's called us to give us a book recommendation. Daryl, what book are you going to recommend? Well, 
I've been looking around for a way to try to look at social life in America from different perspectives Mm. or a new perspective, anything from what I was used to. And this book, 24-7 by Jonathan Crary, really impressed me as a description of what the technological uh, life is uh, doing to us now and uh, what it means. Uh, It's a very sort of penetrating analysis of reality and our present. It's also written in a way that's clear. You know, he's got a very uh, energetic prose style. What does he talk about? Well, for one thing, he he talks about sleep as an offense against capitalism. <laughs> oh. uh, since now the global market, you know, wants to operate 24-7, uh, sleep is kind of the enemy. Uh, and, you know, he's interested in a lot of the research going on in military and corporate worlds uh, uh, to kind of uh, have this constant... Uh, productivity mm-hmm. uh, and uh, activity. So it sort of takes place uh, talks on these levels in a sort of bold and uh, original way, I find. Interesting. Has it made uh, you feel better about sleeping as a form of protest? About sleeping? <laughs> Against capitalism? <laughs> it's made me feel better about being lazy, yes. Yeah. Much better about being lazy, yes. And then I remember my teacher, Elizabeth Harbick, I remember all the time, she always said to read poetry before you wrote prose, hmm. something that had nothing to do with what you were going to do, but that opened up the possibilities of language in your head. So I wanted to sneak in a recommendation, if I could, of uh, Please. Uh, Yellow Tulips, Selected Poems of James Fenton, I would certainly recommend. But that's yeah. because I like him, and that's my partner. Oh, I see. Um, and do you do you just have him recite the work to you before you work, or no? Um, <laughs> you would never do that. You well, take the book out. I sort of recommended him to a radio show. He'd be very annoyed. We will never tell him, but we will tell our listeners to to go get his book and read it. You're very kind. Yeah. So nice to talk to you, Daryl. Will you tell us the title of the books again and the authors? Twenty four seven by Jonathan Crary. Mm-hmm. and Yellow Tulips by James Fenton. Thank you so much. Thank you for this. We've been speaking with Daryl Pinkney. His latest book is called Busted in New York and Other Essays. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jay Hoberman, author of Make My Day. And you draw this through line from the nostalgia that American graffiti sort of taps into and initiates in Hollywood to the kind of nostalgia that eventually Reagan seems to both embody and kind of enact within the office. Could you, <laughs> so, and that's sort of a, a, yeah. a big task, but how did, as you said earlier, how did these movies sort of get into Reagan? And how did he sort of harken back to the, I think you, you write, the innocence of America prior to the, the 60s and the 70s? Yeah. Well, I, I, should, I should say, I mean, that, that, that first that, again, you know, Reagan and, and, and American graffiti are, are, they're independent, but they're, right, they're tapping course, yeah. into something that, that's similar. Because, you know, if Reagan saw American graffiti, and I don't know that he did, I mean, it would have 
it wouldn't have meant much to him. I mean, who are these kids? Is this music? I mean, that's not, not what he's nostalgic about. But what he was able to tap into, I think, was this kind of World War II or 1940s nostalgia. I mean, that was the period when, when Hollywood was at its absolute peak. It was before television. You know, the studios were producing hundreds of movies a year, and that's what people watched. And there was a, a certain kind of ideology, which was very much in evidence during World War II, uh, which is the, one of the things that I get at in the, in, in the first book. It's not, it wasn't just film noir. It wasn't just these dark movies that were made during World War II. They were very gung-ho movies. And, of course, it's ironic that the most gung-ho movies were made by the uh, communists in Hollywood. I mean, they, they were the most patriotic, most invested in the, uh, in, in the, in, in, in the war effort. And uh, um, but Reagan was part of that too. So that, that so that there's this sense that 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 movies are a really positive force in American life, and that uh, um, they're they're all about you know happiness and making you feel good about being an American, and and uh, uh, that things will always get better, and, and you know, the shining city, and, you know, whatever. So I think that Reagan has that, mm. you know, it's 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 what he imbibed it's it's what he he was part of that when he was a a a movie star and even though he was very angry in the 60s and part of the reaction uh against what was going on and uh you know he became a a political star when he gave this election eve defense of barry goldwater which you know because he could he was such a good speaker you know like really you know galvanized you know goldwater's supporters so he brought that that along and he was able to, uh, you know, he was he was able to embody this kind of cheerfulness, which, as I said, was like lost on me because to, to me he was the gangster from, mm-hmm. from the from the killers. But when he, you know, debated Carter and he, you know, was able to make a joke, there you go again, and and say these say these things, people loved that. And I think that that was, it's not like he was playing a role that he played in in the movies. It was that he was he he knew how to play a good neighbor or, you know, mm-hmm. like a friendly... Co- I mean, all these things would have been second nature to him. He knew how to play roles like that. And it was enormously appealing to to people. I'm wondering if you think that the Reagan era of, you know, feel-good films has ever ended. Because I hate to bring in Trump, but when we're talking about uh, nostalgia, yeah. I mean... Yeah. Well, I uh, mean, we can't not. It's I mean. un- the uncan- <laughs> there's such an uncanny connection between yeah. Trump and Reagan, and then also this whole campaign that's built on nostalgia going back to, you know, when yeah. America was great and all these <clears> things, and, and having the film star, um, sorry, television, you know, persona as just a tie-in and lead into the presidency yeah. is eerie. So do you think we've ever diverged from that trajectory? Well, I do think that, that those movies... You know, feel-good movies. I mean, that that remains a kind of template for Hollywood. I mean, we've never really gone back. There are occasionally, you know, like small downbeat right, movies that are made. Most but of them are independent. I mean, it's it's we we've never gone back to that. But that also period. from Star Wars, you kind of the, yes. the the you know huge success of Star Wars That's seems right. to also have the blockbusters. Yeah, and and, th- and then from that, I mean, now you have the uh, uh, you know the the Marvel movies and the comic book. Uh, movies, which which seem to be the, the sort of the quintessential Hollywood uh, genre of the of the 21st century, but you know, movies themselves are less central now, and that's one of my points. I think that Reagan, in a way, is like the epitome of Hollywood, mm-hmm. and it's you know when he when he goes, you know, things start to fade. Now to bring up Trump, and and I, I agree that you can't not 
think about him. And in fact, you know, I started this book when Obama was president, but I finished it when uh, Trump was president. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about him every day, you know, and, uh, you know, my wife was saying, we have to write about Trump. I mean, so that, right. you know, that was the wow. thing. I mean, you know, uh, my friend Art Spiegelman, who did the, he, did, he wanted to put Trump on the, on the cover. I said, no, you can't, <laughs> you can't do that, you know. <laughs> so, but I, I would say that w- at the end, I talk about, about that because, yeah, Trump is a, pro- a professional entertainer too, like like Reagan. He also had a star on, has a star on Hollywood Boulevard. But <laughs> Trump does not come out of Hollywood, and Trump, it's not so much that Trump grew up watching television. I mean, you know, but th- th- that would have been true that the TV would have been much more important to him than the movies. But he doesn't have that that Hollywood ideology that Reagan had so naturally that he just you know was really that much a part of uh, of a break and Trump comes out of something much more uh, negative I mean tabloid celebrity and and talk radio and it's not just reality TV although clearly that's what made him a a, a media star but he was already some kind of personality before that and um, something that I find very haunting about about Trump you know there are many things but uh, is that, you know, he's got this, they refer to his his base, and it's always like 40%, 40% of the people, whatever, you know, like support Trump no matter what. No president has ever been consistently so uh, mired below 50% as, as, as Trump. But I don't think it bothers him. And the reason I don't think it bothers him is because he comes out of television and he understands that, you know, to him, it's, it's a 40% Nielsen rating would be fantastic. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so that he's it, that doesn't that doesn't concern him, and um, and he does know all these these reality TV show tricks. I mean, everybody is. It took a long time for it to become in any way respectable to talk about Reagan in the '80s as somebody who came out of Hollywood. And I know this from writing at the Voice because I used to, I, I used to write about this, and the political writers were pissed off. I mean, you know, they, it seemed to them like very trivial to talk about him as somebody who knew how to manipulate his image and, and, and so on. But with, with Trump, people realized the, 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 the reality TV show immediately. And, um, you know, I was, I was saying to you before that, that you know, my sense of, of, of Trump as a, uh, as, a, as a New Yorker was he was just this colossal con man, you know, and, and a, uh, you know, this, uh, this windbag. I mean, I never in a million years would have thought that he could have become president. And the reason for that, but I never saw the, the celebrity apprentice. So right. I had no idea how he was, he was seen by uh, millions of people. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying about Reagan. Like yeah. you see him in this <laughs> movie, he plays a ki- you know mafia killer, yeah, and then yeah. it's like, oh, how could that guy become president? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the movies that you discuss in the book. So you start with a sort of startling juxtaposition, which is Nashville and Jaws. Why do you compare those two movies? Well, they came out around the same time, mm-hmm. and that's something that you know that I'm always looking for. In, in the book, like the structure is everything. The chronology takes a lot of, you know, I have to work on these chronologies before I can do anything. So they come out at the same time, and I think that even then, people realized that they were both disaster films. I mean, that was that was the dominant mode, but they were such different disaster films, mm-hmm. and they really were antithetical. I mean, uh, Nashville is sort of the epitome of a director-driven film, Robert Altman, you know, a very strong directoral personality, but also somebody who's, who kind of intuited how movies were going to come together and was in, in some ways improvisational and that he came up with this situation and these actors and they were going to see what was going to happen. 
and and that was Nashville. And Nashville also had a very uh, bleak view of, uh, of of America and uh, was critical in a, in a way that can be seen as polarizing. I mean, you have to imagine you know, <laughs> what the reviews of the, that this movie got in Nashville itself. I mean, they, you know, they hated it. I mean, mm-hmm. the, this, you know. Whereas Jaws is is something else. It's, first of all, it's a, it's a pre-sold project. I mean, the, the, the book Jaws had been an enormous bestseller. So it's already, you know, like something that is, 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 is proved with uh, successful with the American public. I mean, uh, it, ha- it has a, a, a very memorable title. And uh, um, uh, the director, Steven Spielberg, was not interested in improvising. I mean, in fact, on the contrary, he had to solve all these logistical problems to make, to make the movie. I mean, it was a difficult movie to make. But what he understood was what drives movies. I mean, you know, suspense and, you know, the alternating of, like, uh, uh, you know, oscillating between comfort and discomfort and, and so on. And he really was a, 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 an intuitive filmmaker in that sense, the, the opposite of, of, of Altman. And, you know, it was an enormously successful movie. I mean, it was briefly the most, uh, the highest grossing movie of all time. Also, I should say it, it, it <laughs> you know, rather... Bizarrely, uh, Universal thought that they were gonna, they wanted it for Christmas, but it was delayed. I mean, so it's a, it's a mistake <laughs> that it came out during the summer. But then you had the whole summer like promoting this movie, and <coughs> I don't think that Jaws is is so to speak an empty vessel. I really do think it's about something. I mean, it's very similar to uh, uh, in some respects to not so much to Moby Dick, although people point that out, but more to like Ibsen's An Enemy of the People. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing where there's this this town which wants to where there's a danger and that and you know they, they, there's a one person who wants to like face up to it and the other people want to cover it up and so on so it too is a kind of post watergate film it just takes a much more optimistic view of things you know than um than nashville which ends you know uh if you remember with an assassination and with these people sort of, you know, somebody comes to the stage being singing the song, it don't worry me, you know, and everybody joins in. And it's, you know, really shows the, you know, America as this confused and uh, uh, disrupted places where in Jaws, they kill the uh, shark, the character who's the most problematic, you know, the, uh, the working class hero, you know, Quint is killed in the attempt. And then you have like the young technocrat who's really not quite a hippie, but sort of, you know, the Richard Dreyfuss character, you know, makes a kind of alliance with with the cop. And, you know, I to me that seems very, you know, predictive of Jimmy Carter maybe. I don't know. Certainly it's a it's a it's a mm. political alignment that, 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 that you're seeing that happens there in that in that movie. And uh um so in it it too is a kind of feel good movie, even though it scares the uh the audience. And so that's that's why it, it seemed once I once I saw that. I realized that you can just like play these movies off against each other, and of course, you know, Nashville is the end of one kind of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and Jaws is the is the beginning of of, of uh, another kind. Is there any other film that you feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss from the book that somehow very emblematic of the Reagan years? Well, yes, there's a there's a movie that um, <coughs> not a movie that I that I care for very much, but I think that it's. It's a, uh, you know, because Jaws I like. I mean, it works for me, too. But a movie that I think is pure symptom is Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a movie that, you know, I saw it when it came out. I was an adult. And it didn't strike me as all that that funny, I mean, uh, at the time. But I, I did, 
I was taken by the by the effect that it had on people. People really, really loved it, and you know, to me that that suggests that there's something else going on in the movie. I mean, it wasn't just it, it, you know, it's not as funny as Caddyshack or any of these other Bill Murray movies that were there. There's there's got to be something more, and and um, what I I kind of thought uh, then, and 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 then think all, all the more strongly now is that it's like the perfect expression of uh, Reaganism. I mean, it came out in the summer of 1984, which was, of course, you know, <laughs> 1984 was like this this year that, you know, like everybody was primed for, uh, was affecting every everything. And then Reagan's 84 campaign is really the height of his popularity. It was like Beatlemania or something. So this movie you have these guys are like freelance disaster specialists. They 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 <laughs> they make their money, you know, like by like sort of encouraging this false need and then and then and then solving the problem. It seems so much like Reagan, but they're also cynical, so that you can say I'm not taken in by this. It's, it's a satire of, you know, special effects movies, but it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't. You know, like satirize people who believe in these things. It's just, you know, the, the, the arch villain is this guy from the Envir- Environmental Protection Agency that hates government regulation. They start on the Columbia campus, which, of course, you know, like is very, you know, uh, redolent of 1968. I mean, there are all these things in, in, in the movie which, for lack of a better term, they're, they're so reactionary. And, and it's, it's made it to be so much fun. I mean, people just, just really loved it. You know, the best review was in the Wall Street Journal because they, they immediately saw, you know, it was that, not the movie review or somebody in the business page. They said how, how business school friendly mm-hmm. it was, and it, and, and it is. And so I think that that's, that's the key movie of the, uh, of the Reagan period. But again, I would say that Ghostbusters and Reagan, they're symptomatic of the same thing. They don't, you know, it's not like one makes the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I wanted to, you know, that stance of kind of this dream life of, of interpreting politics and cinema and entertainment as a, a way of understanding this like dream life and, and vice versa, maybe. Um, it seems like such a perfectly freeing position for a critic because it doesn't have to make, you know, one to one sense exactly. Um, so and I and I just think it works so well in this book. Um, I'm wondering if you ever have thought like, instead of us dreaming that dream, that dream is dreaming us, <laughs> you know, like how, go, especially because there's, you know, you're able to go back and look at the records of what presidents watched in the White House. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's like, often there is some weird correlation, like, oh, they watched this movie. And the next day, they invaded Cambodia for Nixon. I think you I can't remember yeah. which film it was that you point Patton. out. Okay, <laughs> right. And that's so eerie and, yeah. and strange. Um, so uh, does that line ever get kind of fuzzy for you in terms of, you know, what is the symptom of what or, you know, what I'm saying? I, I think that that I would go back to like the notion of a of a, of a symptom, and I I do think that that uh, there is this shared fantasy world, dream life. I mean uh, that that we all live in, and that it's it's uh, to one degree or another, and that it's it is produced by the uh, mass media, and it used to be uh, movies. You know, movies are not as important now as 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 television and and maybe even video games. But it's it is this this thing that's outside of us, but that we're inside. And you know, with movies especially, everybody kind of sees their own movie. I mean, that's the that's this is something that I learned as a, as a critic. I mean, people don't you know don't don't see the same. They're, they're looking at the screen, but they're, they're something else. It's 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 mixing with their own. Um, you know history and thoughts and 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 so on. So I think that 
there is. I, I, I would never su- <laughs> suggest that there's not a, a material, you know, realm of political action and 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 so on, and that 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 if, if you know events have consequences and and so on, but I do think that people also live. In, you know, to a large degree, inside their heads, and and that uh, that's where this 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 dream life is. And of course, you know, when you come back to them, I mean, Reagan was the most susceptible. I mean, the thing with 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 Nixon is kind of shocking that he saw Patton and then he like looked at it three or four more times and then invaded Cambodia. But you know, Reagan would see something. I mean, when Reagan saw ET, and then <laughs> and the next day he wanted to, you know, uh, uh, have a conference with NASA. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's that for Reagan, movies were a way of knowledge. And I, I, th- I think that makes him almost unique in, mm. in presidents. I mean, certainly, you know, Kennedy liked James Bond movies, and you could see why he might have, I mean, in terms of his personality and mm-hmm. his, his fantasy world and so on. But I don't think that he would have taken them as, I hope not, but maybe he did take them as literally as, as Reagan took E.T., but then if you think about it, I mean, why shouldn't, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it made him think about this. Uh, it's another one that uh, I, I find very kind of touching in a way is that there was a German submarine movie, Das Boot. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it won an Oscar and so on. And, and, and Reagan saw it. And, you know, the thing is that when he would look at these movies with Nancy, typically at Camp David, you know, and just for the two of them and their, and their staff, he would note it in his diary, which is how we know you know, like uh, everything that he looked at. And he didn't always make a comment, but but sometimes he did. And Das Boot really impressed him because he says how strange it was to be seeing this this uh, a movie and uh, um, uh, being sympathetic to the enemy. And, you know, that sounds very trivial, but it really isn't. I mean, it, it means that this that this movie inspired some kind of empathy in him, and, and he recognized that. You know, maybe the, the most crucial one for, for, for all of us is that when um, the day after was on television, you know, this, this, the, the movie about, you know, post-nuclear war, the Reagan White House saw this as like a, as a political thing. I mean, I, this is one, one of the takeaways I got from doing research in the Reagan Library, which is a whole other, you know, thing. But, but they, they were really mobilizing against this, this movie. Sure, because they were afraid they wanted to get the MS missiles. And, you know, I mean, they, they saw this movie as a threat. And... They were writing up talking points, you know, to, for people, op-eds. I mean, they really was all hands on deck. You know, Pat Buchanan, all these people were involved in it. So Reagan wanted to see it. He saw it in advance, and he watched it through, and he, you know, he, he made some notes. I mean, some of them are, are kind of like bizarre. He says, well, how are they going to sell commercials to this? I mean, he did see it as like a big bummer. But he also thought of it as a strategy. He says, well, we have to take the point of view that this is something that we, we, we never want to happen. And he, he figured out this way to sort of turn this movie at his own advantage. And, and that's significant, but also I think that it did put it in his mind. I mean, when he finally began negotiating with Gorbachev, I mean, he was very concerned about, about uh, uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And it's, you know, I mean, we have to be glad that, right. that, that these guys, you know, like were able to reach some kind of uh, agreement on that. And this movie definitely had something to do with it. The power of the cinema yeah. in this yeah. in this context is yeah. just a little bit unsettling, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but good thing that yeah he didn't yeah. watch something else, right? That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what yeah. occurs to me as you say that is that, and as you said earlier, that Trump seems to come from something much darker 
than than film in Hollywood, and that in fact Hollywood has sort of been enacting a, an open hostility toward our current president, and so in some ways, like very much the opposite of Reagan. Do you think there's a cultural artifact that is similar to Ghostbusters, but for someone like Trump? Or Trump you know, I would almost say that that, that the artifact is Fox News. Mm. Yeah. I mean, mm. I think that there's something that's so much more, there's a whole worldview that's available to people 24-7 now. I think that it's true that Hollywood by, in general, would be hostile to Trump. I mean, that, uh, you know, for, for any number of, of reasons. But uh, I don't see, and I don't necessarily see, I mean, I can't think of anything offhand that's a very Trumpy movie, but I don't see everything now. And I do see things that are in some ways you, you, could, you could construe as, op- as oppositional. But I, I think that uh, movies just don't have the same power. Other things mm-hmm. have superseded it. I don't even think Trump watches movies. No, he claims, you know, his, mm-hmm. uh, they asked him what his favorite movie is. You know, it's The Godfather and Citizen Kane. I mean, he knows uh, what to say. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and actually, I do think that The Godfather is, you know, to my mind, that, that now emerges as probably, you know, like the most significant movie made in, you know, post-war America, certainly in post-60s uh, America. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump world is just saturated with Godfather tropes. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, he could have gotten that through osmosis anyway. Right. Just living in New York. Well, Jay Hoberman, I think we have to end there. But thank you so much for being here. Oh, great pleasure for me. We've been speaking with Jay Hoberman, whose new book is Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 